gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to mention a few things. First, if you would like to support the work we're doing, you can support us with a few dollars a month on Patreon, and I will link that in both the episode notes, and it's also on our website. You can also give a one-time donation on PayPal, and I'll have that information on both places also. Then we do have Theology Gals merch, t-shirts, uh, short sleeve, long sleeve, all sorts of different styles and mugs and um, some other products. And then also, if you haven't checked out our series of books, uh, we, have, we have Bible reading and prayer journals, and then also scripture and catechism memory books, and sermon notes notebooks, including two different ones for children, for very young children, and then probably middle elementary school. So, all of that will be linked on our episode notes, and that you can find all those things on our website. This week, we're very excited to have Dr. Diane Langberg on with us to talk about her upcoming book. Uh, it'll be coming out on the 20th of October, so right after we air this episode, and it's called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And before we get started, Dr. Langberg, would you be willing to give just a little background about yourself and and who you are and the things that you've been working on? Sure. Uh, I'm a psychologist working with trauma before it was called, since before it was called trauma. Uh, I started out with clients in the early 1970s. DST was a diagnostic category in 1980. <laughs> um started out with Vietnam vets and battered women, only they didn't know they were battered and neither did I because nobody was talking about that. 
So I've ended up on a trajectory that uh, has included all kinds of trauma, including a lot of international travel to places where trauma has occurred. Um, and it's been um, mostly, probably 95% in the Christian world. Most of it has been caused by people in the Christian world. So it's been a heartbreaking journey, frankly. Um, and I've been doing it for almost 50 years. So that's a lot of broken people, um, many broken by those who name the name of Christ. And we hear stories all the time. Um, I think probably one of the things I often say is doing this podcast has probably been the most shocking, mm -hmm. um, surprising thing, because I didn't realize just how much this sort of thing existed in the church. And then I start getting emails with people telling me their stories. And, you know, we talked before the episode about how timely this book is, but why did you write this book? Well, the, the book wasn't originally my idea. I was just trudging along doing my work. <laughs> and uh, the physician's editor from Brazos got in touch with me and uh, suggested it. And I took some months to think about it and realized that there wasn't anything out there that talked from the standpoint of what I do. And to the church in particular, uh, globally. So I, I love Jesus Christ, and I love his body, and I'm brokenhearted a lot of the time over how his body is conducting itself. It's not following her head. And I wrote the book because I long for the church to hear and see him and change the way that they function in Christendom and treat people each, including each other. Um, and just long for them to look like him. That's our call in this world, not to build institutions and systems, but to look like him. Well, I really appreciate uh, you writing this book. It was uh, a blessing to me to read it and I'm highly recommending it to others. I'm very excited for it to come out soon. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated in the book is you talked about, you, you actually defined power, like what it is, where it comes from, why we as humans have power. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about that. Sure. It's been interesting over the years to realize that people don't talk about power and they don't evaluate their own use of power or how power is used and how it has affected their lives. It's just sort of a thing that hangs out there and nobody's really actively looking at it and speaking about it very much, though in recent years there's been some of that. Power is very simply the ability to impact. Um, I think I, I start the book talking about a newborn baby, you know, who cries in the middle of the night and has the power to wake two very tired sleeping adults and get them out of bed and running into a room. That's a lot of impact for a tiny little thing who doesn't even know what it's doing. So it's, it's part of human nature. It's part of the image of God in us to have power. And from the beginning, he gave us uh, his image in many ways, and that's one of them. And he gave us the power to choose. He gave us the power to have impact. He said to Adam and Eve, go and rule and subdue my earth. Please note, he did not tell them to rule and subdue each other. 
just his world. And so he, he gave them, he used power words, he gave them instructions about what to do with that power, and that power was to be used to cause his world to flourish and be blessed in his name. And they used their power to choose to disobey him. We still do. <laughs> it's changed the course of everything, and we all have that same propensity to use our power for ourselves and to disobey God, even though we often name it in very spiritual language, make ourselves feel better about it. So what are some ways that we can use and misuse power and how can we even use power to bless others? Well, I think it's important to realize there are many different ways to have power. Um, and so I, I talk about different types in the book. So um, a very obvious one, of course, is verbal power somebody who has an ability with words and they can use those words in influential ways. So most people in leadership or in a pulpit or, or a professor or whatever, they have verbal power. There's the power of position. You know, if you're sick and don't know what's wrong with you and you go to the doctor, the doctor has the power of position. That's the authority in the room is going to tell you what's wrong with your body. It's also uh, someone who has the power of knowledge. So if you have a question that's the person you tend to believe and listen to. So you can see, for example, if you have somebody with verbal power, the power of knowledge, the power of position, how much they can get other people to think or choose or say or act in ways that they prefer because of the gifting in those areas uh, of power. There's economic power. That's pretty obvious. Uh, in terms of what that is, and that can be huge groups with economic power, it can be an individual with economic power. There's power in, in terms of spiritual things. So if you have the power of knowing theology and the word of God, and you're in a position that is, at least by people, spiritually lifted up, um, you are seen not only as using your power with people, but you're using it for God with his permission and his stamp of approval. And you can use his word in twisted ways and have tremendous power over other people. Um, so I walk through all those different ways that I think we need to know about and understand and consider ourselves. Where are the areas that I have it uh, more than others? And how am I using it? And what is my impact on others? Uh, which is ultimately for them to flourish and be blessed. That's how God has used his power. And we are to be like him in that way. Which means that people are more like him, understand him more clearly, love him more as a result of the use of my power. I think that's a very helpful way uh, to think about uh, power and our uses of it. Uh, it is a lot more diverse in its application than I think we sometimes see it in, in more of a narrow approach, but our application. Um, I also liked you talking, talk about vulnerability as a gift. Mm. Could you explain what you mean by the gift of vulnerability? Well, to be vulnerable means you are capable of being wounded. Probably not too many of us would sign up for that. Jesus signed up for that. He signed up to be wounded and to make himself vulnerable. He, who the scriptures tell us, had all power. So he who had all power 
chose to become vulnerable, capable of being wounded on our behalf in order to bless us. You can't love somebody and not be vulnerable. If you love somebody, they can hurt you far more than somebody you don't even know, let alone somebody that you don't love. So there are many ways like that. Uh, you know, children are obviously vulnerable in a hundred ways, but they're vulnerable also in terms of whether they're loved well or not growing up. It shapes their entire lives. The way that we treat people of another race, the way that we treat um, people from someplace else in the world, the way we treat people in church who aren't like us for some reason, uh, they're all vulnerable to being wounded by us, and we have the capacity to do that to them. But vulnerability also opens us up to receiving love and blessing and flourishing from those who love well. And so not to be vulnerable is to be uh, in a fortress, which many people try to do, and they try to do that with their power because there are those in their histories often who have misused power and done a lot of wounding in terrible ways. And so, but to, to refuse to be vulnerable, number one is means you're gonna wound a lot of other people. It also means you're gonna miss a lot of blessing and love and uh, relationship that is uh, based on truth and kindness and gentleness. So to not be vulnerable is to be like a big rock. You know, you can pat that thing as much as you want and you can suck it with your fist, but the only thing that's going to get hurt is your fist <laughs> because it's not vulnerable to that as opposed to something small, something soft, um, which can receive from us. Speaking about abuses of power, you mm -hmm. say, when it is exposed, why are we so determined to deny the truth and thus deceive ourselves? So why are we susceptible to such deception? Well, that's been there since the beginning, too. <laughs> um, it's how we chose not to love God. It's how we chose um, to use our power to disobey him. Um and, you know, if you go back to the story in Genesis, you know, that Adam and Eve told themselves something else other than what God said, and they chose to believe it. You know, th this eating from this tree won't hurt us. It'll actually make us more like God, and we were created in his image. So how could that be a bad thing if we're going to be more in his image? And so words got used in twisted and deceptive ways, and... Uh, allowed human beings to pursue, accept, and act in ways that are against who God is and what he says. And that deception is with us all. And so you can have somebody in power, for example, in a church situation who people find out somewhere down the road, it's somebody in leadership who's, you know, had sex with I don't know, six minors and, you know, nobody knew it and they can't believe it. And how can such a fine person and that must not be true and all of those things. But inside that person is a long trail of first deception of the self and sec second deception of others. You know, you, you don't wake up one morning and start abusing children. 
<laughs> you get there by way of deception. I'm helping them. I'm loving them. I'm being uh, kind to them. I'm making them feel important. There's all kinds of deceptions that people tell themselves in order to hurt other people. Um, and that, then they are controlled by them and they lose their way. They don't even know it's a deception anymore. One thing that you address is uh, systemic abuse. Hmm. And I wonder if you could describe you know, what is systemic abuse and um, talk about like what it would look like or how it operates at a church setting. It took me a long time to learn about systemic abuse. I mean, it wasn't something people really talked about very much years ago. And, and when I look back now, you know, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of things I didn't understand. I mean, I certainly understood the, about the victim part, but I didn't understand how systems uh, worked in that way and supported perpetrators, basically. Um, the word system literally means together stand. So a system can be an institution, it can be a denomination, it can be a nation, it can be the Boy Scouts, it can be all of those things are people who together stand for a certain purpose or goal. And it can be a wonderful goal and it can be an evil goal. And deception is involved in systemic abuse, just like it is in individuals. You know, people tell themselves what isn't good is good. And the place where I first learned about it was from Holocaust literature. When I was talking to somebody and describing some of the situations that I was dealing with and what I was running into, um, I mean, I, I thought if you went and told people that somebody in leadership was having sex with people in the church, that they would probably want to do something about that. And I turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to think about it. And so, particularly in the church. So, I started reading the history of, of the Nazis and the Holocaust and how the German church followed Hitler and how his words were used to sound like he was leading them to all the things they longed for. Uh, things that God called them to, which actually he was taking them to great evil. And it was very systemic. It was purposefully systemic. So that was where I first began to understand the power of words in a leader and the way things can be framed to the point where the sheep follow. And of course, it's in the scriptures. You, know, you go to Ezekiel and you read about the, the false shepherds who end up exploiting and feeding off the sheep. But, you know, the, the sheep follow the false shepherds because they think they're good. Um, and, and, you know, Jesus talks about that when he talks to the leaders like the Pharisees in the Gospels, you know, you, the woes of the Pharisees and the leading that they did. But it was not just a person who was doing it. It was an entire system so that if anything happened to make it look like somebody was going to turn on the light, the system would come together to protect the perpetrators, to protect their position, to protect their power. And so it, what becomes more important is the system rather than the sheep within the system. I really appreciate what you said there and in that section of the book, because I've seen that in action. Hmm. And it really is, it was so um, affirming, so um, encouraging to read it and see someone else say, you know, this is what you see and this is how it works. And 
one of the things that, that I really like you, you have, you talk about the leaders, you talk about then the, I think the kind of the inner circle of people who mm-hmm. support the leaders and those who, mm-hmm. you know, are there because they like the, I guess, the power surrounding. And then the people who aren't really part of the, part of the decisions, but they are complicit in the decision-making yes. or in, in the cover-ups. And um, I just, um Again, I, just, I really appreciate that. They're complicit by silence. Yeah, that that you talk about them being complicit by silence because um, because of how often you see it. You see it in in so many different ways, and all the organizations and types that you talked about are people who you know. Well, what could I have done? Like, well, <laughs> you can you can could say have that. said the truth. Yes, right. Yes, um, but but you know, you go back to what you were asking in terms of deception. Mm-hmm. Complicit by silence, because if I expose this, I will hurt the church. And the church is God's. And I don't want to hurt his people. It, you can see, so it, you actually end up behaving in ungodly ways in order to protect God's name. Which, I mean, if you try to absorb that sentence, it sort of hurts the brain. But <laughs> it's heartbreaking, yes. But the fact is, it happens all the time. And when, when I, you know, one of the examples in the book is the Boy Scouts and how, you know, their purpose was to teach these boys morality and integrity and all of those things. And they had what they, they, they kept the reports of pedophilia and they put them in what they called the perversion files. They protected those files and kept them because they were protecting this institution that was going to help boys have integrity and morality. And so that happens in churches and, and Christian organizations and missions around the world all the time. This is God's work. If we expose this, we're going to damage his work. But his work isn't the institution. His work is in the hearts and minds of his people. And you won't destroy that if you turn the light on. Yeah, I think we've all heard or heard stories or witnessed uh, situations where it was dealt with poorly, you know, in the way that you're talking about right now. But how should we respond to systemic abuse? Well, it, first of all, you will feel like doing what Jesus did sometimes, which is cracking whips and turning tables over. I advise against it. <laughs> uh, but he, he did that to teach us something. And he talked about the fact that that they had made his house, God's house, a den of thieves. And the word den means shelter, safe place. That's why an animal goes into its den to be safe. And thieves are people who exploit. So what he's saying is, you made this a refuge for exploitation. That's what he did when he turned all those things over and made a lot of racket. But but the lesson is that the system has to be pushed over and, you know, (laughs) the tables have to be thumbs and everything else. But but you can't do that as an individual. And he, he did it, what, twice? And they still did it again? I mean, it's not like it really changed the system. What it was showing was the character of God toward six systems. If if you know that something is happening in a system, you need to find a safe person 
You need somebody to talk to, to think it through. You have to go, you, you, you have to find ways to tell the truth in ways that it is more likely to be heard than less likely. People can still completely refuse to hear it, but you want people with some who would be safe for you to talk to because you're exposing something that some people would like to um, hurt you for if you expose it. So you need a safe person and you need somebody with wisdom about how to speak truth, which Jesus calls us to do and he did in ways that expose the exploitation and abuses with a call to truth and light. Uh, It's not, you know, we can get angry about systems and just want to destroy them. Uh, And we can behave in ways that are just as abusive as the system if we're not careful uh, with that anger. So it has to be used wisely and carefully. But it's not something I recommend to people to do alone. Uh, Number one, it's not a big enough voice. And number two, it's not safe. And you'll just end up another casualty. And that's not what you're trying to do. And more and more people are um, on the board for grace which is godly response to abuse in a Christian in, environment. And, you know, it does investigations and all kinds of things with churches and other Christian systems. So there are more services out there now where people can find at least input or consultation or a way to go forward and how to do it. Because, um, you know, the, the bottom line is you want them to see the truth and, and learn a new way. Thank you for explaining that. You're right that there is a lot of uh, a lot that we can do, and there is more being done. And I'm thankful for those who are speaking up, uh, and for organizations like Grace for the work that they do. Well, you know, the other thing is that people in the body of Christ, the more we understand things like power, the abuse of power, and cover up, and systemic stuff, and everything else, the more the collective voice of the people of God can call the institutions that, A, they represent him to actually look like him. There's power in the fact that there are more voices now about that, that victims are speaking up that people who are caring for victims are speaking up and calling things by their right name. And part of what you're doing with this podcast is calling people to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason that the power of that collective voice can't swell. That's very encouraging. Um, One of the chapters, Colleen and I both, I think it was the chapter seven in your book. It was, that was the one where I'm practically like highlighting the whole chapter making notes, reading through it. But you talk about the how these common beliefs about men and women that um, especially common within conservative Christian circles and their impact on churches and relationships. And you said um, in part that, quote, males are taught to be strong, competent, and in charge. Their authority is to be obeyed. Females are taught to yield, support, and nurture. These tasks are not interchangeable, hence violence is the male's right, and the burden of managing it is the female's, which is a very powerful quote there. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how these views affect men and women in the church and our discussions about power and authority? Yes, part of the way I began to pay attention to that, which I I do think I put in the book too, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, is when I was working with battered women and um, Vietnam vets, I realized they they had the same symptoms. 
So I began to, it sort of dawned on me that actually there's more than one kind of war zone. You know, war, literal war is not the only war zone. There can be war zone in people's homes. And of course, I went on to learn later there could be war zones in the church. But what I did see was that the way that the women handled their symptoms and the way the men handled theirs was probably not 100%, but pretty close to being very different from each other. And so, you know, the men had to be tough and strong and all of those things and not have the emotions and everything else. And what they did was bottle all this stuff from the war up inside of them. And it came out sideways, you know, whether it was drugs or alcohol, or they became the people who battered their wives, you know, the things like that. And women uh, got smaller, men got bigger and women got smaller in the face of those kinds of traumas and women got more um, compliant and quiet and lost their voices and, um, women in some of those situations in domestic violence cases be almost like scurry around in a house just to make sure that everything's okay because if it's not okay, they're going to get hit. Um, so I, I began thinking about it way back then and then watching things in Christendom over the years. We have somehow made rules about the character of men and women and who they are to be, which is what you quoted in that paragraph, mm. which, again, if you go back to Genesis, we said to Adam and Eve, rule and subdue my earth. Those are strong words. Those are words that require competence. Um, they require knowledge. They require hard work which we have culturally, at least in the Western world and probably the globe, thought of those characteristics as male. And I don't think Eve was, this was not included in, in that call. And then, the, you know, the, the idea that women are to support and nurture and yield, and those are all qualities Jesus had. <laughs> you know, you... You think back to what he did for us? He, he, he yielded. He gave up his life. His, his support then of his people and now of us is unlike any other support we've ever seen. And his nurture, my goodness. I mean, first God is our father. <laughs> Jesus is our shepherd. The spirit indwells us. Those are not feminine qualities. They are godlike on both sides, male and female. And we've divvied them up. We've distorted people by doing that. And we've misunderstood, I think, the fact that the call to be like Christ, who was all of those things. Yeah, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but you say something like, you know, that we focus more on authority and submission than on love. Yes, yes. And, and again, if you look through the scriptures from beginning to end in terms of the idea of authority in any capacity, authority that is godlike is love. Authority that is godlike has humility. I mean, he came in the flesh so we would get it. 
because <laughs> we weren't getting it. <laughs> We're still not getting it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciated that. So one of the things you talk about is spiritual abuse, and I think this is something that a lot of people um, may not have a good grasp on and mm-hmm. understand. What is spiritual abuse, and what are some aspects that we should recognize in our own institutions? Well, it, it can take all sorts of forms in the same way that I talked about forms of power, you know. So if you have a, a tremendous amount of theological or biblical knowledge, uh, if you have emotional power, you know how to sway a group, um, if you have verbal power, you can gather all of those things up and put them in spiritual words backed up by scriptural words and get people to do things they never would have believed in, thought were right, or wanted to do. And that's the German church under Hitler. Now, he used all kinds of spiritual concepts in some of his speeches to call the church to do evil. And they did. So, you know, people in leadership can can ex- use express things to say somebody who came to them for counseling and use spiritual language in order to exploit this person for their own food. Whether it's sexual, whether it's, you know, working with no breaks, whether it could be anything. But the point is that that the spiritual concepts and words and positions are used to get people to do things that God hates. And if it's spiritual, people get muddy in their brains, which I understand. I mean, that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. That's why they, that's why they do it, because it works. Um, because, you know, it, particularly if you've grown up, let's say you're female and you've grown up being told these things are the ways you're supposed to be. You're supposed to yield. Well, this is the pastor, or this is your prof in the Christian school, or whatever, your Sunday school teacher. This person is somebody you're supposed to listen to. They have authority over you. And if you think differently than they do, they're right. And they've told you these things, and they've quoted verses, so God agrees with them and not you. And so God's word and uh, his power are used to get people to sin or to be damaged and wounded by us for our own sakes. It's quite diabolical. I mean, again, you know, I keep going back to Genesis, but that's where it all started. Um, You know, (laughs) you want to be like God. I mean, that's what the enemy said. Well, God told them, you're in my image. (laughs) Of course they want to be like God. He said, okay, I'll tell you how to be like God. He's using God's words to seduce Adam and Eve. That's spiritual abuse. That's what he did. And he knew the spiritual words because he'd he'd been with God before he fell. So it's a deceptive path that uses spiritual things to wound in unspeakable ways. And, And the soul damage of that is... People can spend decades after living with that for years just trying to figure out if God actually really maybe does love them. It's just so inconceivable to them uh, that he loves them. 
And that makes me want to turn tables over and crack. One of the things I appreciate that you talked about when you talked about spiritual abuse is that because of the nature of abuse and because of the nature of who we are as people, that all abuse, any kinds, verbal, emotional, financial, sexual, all abuse is ultimately also spiritual abuse. Yes. You cannot separate it because you are abusing a human being knit together by the hands of our father in their mother's womb. They purposefully put together by him. They were created by him in his image. And the ultimate purpose of their life is to flourish and love him and obey him and bless others. And any damage you do to that person in those realms works at destroying that. I don't think we really, I don't think we really, and I include myself in this, grasp the depth of the evil that is done by abuse on the spirit in the spiritual realm. You, you think about it, somebody says to somebody, you know, I don't know, my uncle sexually abused me when I was 12 until I was 14 and Somebody gives a verse and says, you have to forgive your uncle. And if you had enough faith, you'd be able to do that. And then you wouldn't think about it anymore. And they're just wounding them again because those things aren't true. And the reason they're not true is because of this. Because the damage done by those things to a precious person created by God in his image, the wounding has been uh, unspeakable. And of the self, the spirit, and uh, you, you can't you can't fix that with a verse. If you could fix it with a verse, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. So, one of the questions we get a lot, and to give you a little background, uh, theology gals. Besides the podcast, there's a, a Facebook group of women. It's over I think six thousand women in this group, uh, with lots of discussion and various mm-hmm. topics. And a question we get a lot is, you know, from women who are in various abusive situations. Mm. And so if someone's listening today or Mm. reading your book and they realize, they recognize in themselves that they are in an abusive situation, be marriage or church, friendship, organization, whatever the the dynamic, how would you encourage them? You know, what should they do? I know this is very generic, generally. I know each situation would be different, but what are some advice that you would give? Well, in some ways, it's similar to what I said about if you see systemic abuse, but in many of the situations, particularly if you're talking about things like domestic abuse, if a woman speaks up, she could end up dead. So Hmm. um, that's probably not a good outcome. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So if, if somebody is in an abusive situation now, either within a church with in terms of church leaders or um, sexual abuse or in the home with violence, rape, all that, whatever. Um, if there's a child involved, the authorities need to be called, period, end. Um, if it's an adult, the adult has choice. And 
So if, for example, a woman is listening who, who is in a domestic abuse situation, one of the things she needs to hear is actually she has choices. She can do nothing. Might break my heart, but she can do nothing. Um, but there are lots of organizations, unfortunately, domestic violence is increasing because of the pandemic, but there are a lot of organizations out there that solely exist to help women in those situations. And they have all kinds of things that if the church would learn from them and take some of their trainings, they could learn how to do as well, how to text and say that your life is in danger <laughs> because you can't call on the phone because if you call, you'll get killed. You know, there's all sorts of resources like that, um, where their centers are located, where you can go to and be safe, where you can go to with your children and how to do that in a way that doesn't risk anybody's life as much as possible. Um, so it can't be just an impulsive response because the important thing for an abused person to hear is that they matter because they don't know they do sometimes because nobody's treated them like they do. So they matter, their choice matters, their safety matters. And, you know, I'd like to pluck them out right now and have it be done, but it it doesn't work like that. And so the question is how to find those people who are safe, how to find resources, how to figure out which first step you can take and what the next step will be and how to get there. So I, I would urge people listening who aren't being abused but are in these churches and all kinds of things like that. You know, it, it, one in four women are sexually abused in this country before 18. One in six men. One in three women around the world are, are battered at some point in their lives. What does your church know about these things? How can you give hope to women like this who are sitting in the pews and have never heard anything about any of this, their whole lives in church? How can you learn from these organizations about things like rape and sexual abuse and domestic violence and have them teach you how to do this for victims in safe ways? It doesn't risk lives as much as possible. So a lot of the burden is on those who would help. But the victim needs to hear that they're worth the help. And their safety in that journey is of vital importance. And they are wildly more vulnerable because they're already being abused. <laughs> and so protection has to be even greater than it might be for someone else. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. A couple quotes from the book. We really appreciated uh, the first one. But if those in authority refuse to help others, turn a deaf ear and harden themselves to the needs of others, then rejection, not care, becomes the predominant influence. And we thwart God's redemptive work in his people and in this world when we protect our institutions and titles and positions rather than the vulnerable. How can we, as Christians, as churches, combat these abuses of power? I had an easy answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about the quotes that you just read, part of what's happened is that the church thinks it's an institution. 
the church thinks it's an organization or a denomination or something like that. That's not who the church is. The church is human beings who make up the body of Jesus Christ and follow their head, which means they look like him. That's the only way to combat the abuses of power. He became little on our behalf. He suffered for our sake. He was wounded on our behalf. He cared for the least of these. He didn't care about the offering. He didn't care about the building. He disrupted the building. We, we, we've changed him. And this is a broad statement, and there are a lot of wonderful uh, people who aren't like this. But we've changed our understanding of church to institutional. And so you can't expose abuse because we're going to destroy this church that has thousands of people in it or, you know, 25 people. It doesn't matter. But the point is, you're going to destroy God's work. That isn't God's work. There are going to be no institutions in heaven. You're going to be people who love and follow the Lamb. And that's what we're supposed to be doing already. And if we learn to love and follow the Lamb, even if it means being crucified, then it will change. The institutions won't look like they do because they won't be of primary importance at all. He's of a primary importance. You know, you, you, you know the, Paul uses the body analogy. You think of, of your head. You know, If your head told your feet to walk a certain way so you wouldn't get run over by a car and they didn't obey you so you got run over by a car, you would know that there was a huge problem of, between the connection of your head and your feet. To the point that your life was at risk. That's what we're doing. And the only healing for that is for us to lament the ways we've lost our way. To repent of the way we have ignored the least of these and fostered division and defended our denominations and our institutions rather than being like Christ. And bearing his humility and his love and living his ways in this world, in the flesh, so people know who the Father is. That's what he did. That's what we're called to do. Yeah, I, I really appreciated, you know, you talked about abuse in the book, but you also talked about who Jesus is and who we are to be as Christians, that Jesus is the good shepherd. Well, thank you so much. This is, this is really helpful. We'll link the book in the episode notes. It'll be out right after we release this episode or maybe on the day uh, and uh, we Rachel and I both highly highly recommend this book I think this is a must read for leaders in the church pastors elders etc um, I'm I already I told Rachel I'm gonna read it a second time because <laughs> it was just so helpful well I spent um, almost 50 years living it so I guess yeah. you can do that <laughs> 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 thank you for having me. It's a privilege and an honor, and you'll send me the link. Yes, thank you.